Known for his intricate plant sculptures, Nick Bladen is a jeweler and a sculptor. He records biodiversity by capturing the delicate shapes of plants in everlasting sculptures that are known for their remarkable intricacy. He does this by using a 6,000-year-old technique called lost wax casting, fused with his background in dental technology and bronze casting. His dream is to create ever-growing libraries of plant sculptures that preserve and record the beauty of our natural world for generations to come. Living in the heart of the Cape Floral Kingdom in South Africa, Nick has had two solar exhibits at the Everard Reed Gallery and has recently been commissioned to record the plants of the Kalahari. What I really enjoy about Nick is his passion and commitment to his life's purpose. I'm Keith Struthers, and this is Natural School. Welcome, Nick. I'd like to start by just having a look at your youth. When you were young, were you in an environment that was quite sculpturally literate, or was sculpture and art part of your growing up? most definitely was. My father had a stone carving business, which they had started in the mid-60s. What were their carvings of? Depicting, you know, Zulu headdress, um, the Kosa headdress, the Herero, the... They sort of brought out the traditional female dress of most of the tribes in Southern Africa in stone sculptures. So as a youngster, you were walking around at the stone sculpture studio, listening to chisels and hammers. And yes, indeed. My, my dad had, um, he had 50 people working for, for him at a stage. Um, and those guys comprised of Franz Galane, Lucas Koza. And they, they, they were sort of the prized carvers, I think, in South Africa. It must have been quite an atmosphere. Eh? No, it was amazing. It was, it was a big factory. Actually, uh, you know, objectively, it's, it's very similar to what I'm doing today, really. You know, my, my old man, my dad would go out into the, into the felt, collect the stone, put it on a big truck, bring it back to the factory, and then choose and, and plan what happens with each piece of rough stone. And, you know, and then that goes through a whole diamond cutting process and then a sort of sorting process. And eventually, you know, a big rock might become a, become a carving of a family of, you know, eight elephants. And, and that, that was our reality as, you know, six-year-old children running around the factory. So effectively, your youth was prototyping what you're doing now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, it's uncanny. <laughs> Practically, I go out into the field and I bring the, the raw materials back to the studio and process it into a, you know, into a packaged product. You know, th- this is my dad's half of the family. And the, on my mother's side of the family, there is a big candle factory where they paint hand-painted candles. So this was happening concurrently with your dad's yes. sculpture? Stone carving on the one side and... On the other side, we had um, candle manufacture. Are these dipped candles or cast candles? They cast. And so from youth, you ended up in dental sculpture, as it were. 
Could you say a little bit about what you were doing? Yeah, it was. It, I think it was materials and processes we were very comfortable with. Uh, you know, you're working with tools and hang motors and drills and, and furnaces. You know, so, so the dental technology or the, dent, the, the, the crown and bridge process of dental technology that, 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 um, that I preferred um, entailed carving wax. Okay. To create the... That, that sort of vision or realization only happened way afterwards. Um, but so, so they were both very, very comfortable mediums to work with. It's a complete amalgamation of the two sort of family businesses. Hmm. That's very interesting that <laughs> you've actually taken these two practices of your parents and hmm. combined them and taken something of yourself and introduced that into it. And your dental work, I mean, I've spoken to dentists, and, they, and I once asked a dentist, if you could be anything other than a dentist, what would you be? And he said, I'd like to be a dentist again, because it's such a, a craft and such an art of actually sculpting these teeth. I, I, I love dental technology, the whole process, because it was real. It was like tangible, and, and, and working in a laboratory environment completely suits me. The thing with that, with that industry was it was, you were always rushed. My counterparts would create 20 crowns per day, 28 crowns a day, and I would come in and produce six, maximum 10. You know, I preferred flowery crowns rather than sort of NHS standard crowns that are just flat. So your crown was too sculptural? I think so. And yeah. tell me, Nick, you are now busy in the dental world. There's a moment when you start thinking, well, possibly there I could work with plants. How, tell us a little bit about the biography of that process. That happened very early. Let's call it in my second year of study when we started doing casting. Outside the class, there was a kippershol tree, and on this kippershol tree, there were mupani worms. It was quite clear to us that we could cast mupani worms as a class. Wax is a carbon-based material, so thus anything containing carbon will burn out of a, out of a mold and um, can cast it. So thus leaves, plants, flowers, uh, insects. So you can make a mold of a flower petal? Yes. And retain the shape of the petal? Yes. That's remarkable. I think in the dentistry we learn to carve down to 0.3, millimeters. Like every other day, I'd cast a few leaves, and I'd, with with the idea of creating jewelry from it, I never had the know-how. I had these castings. I had all these castings and castings, and and I never had the know-how how to actually take it further. And and those things got put in a box. And so, at what point did you transition to realizing actually I can make a living, or this is a career path for me as different from? Dental work. I ended up working in the UK, and, and there, were, there was a point where I came back to Cape Town for a, for a holiday, and a friend, actually a number of friends throughout my, actually throughout my whole dental career, actually said, Nick, there's one person you have to meet. And, and I never got to meet this person until, I think it was an, on the insistence of a, of a friend who actually drove me to the airport and drove me past... Otto Duplessis' foundry in Simonstown. 
she was just completely insistent, you have to meet this person. You have to, you're not going back to the UK without meeting this guy. And I, I walked into this guy's foundry and there was a, there was a big Dylan Lewis cat that they had just cast and just pieced together. And, and it was just, it was a moment. It was just a complete sort of moment. I, I, I think I was there for maybe two and a half minutes. And, and I said to, I said to Otto, okay, I'm, I'm off to the UK in about two hours. I'll see you in a year's time. Um, if that's okay with you, I'm going to come and work for you. And, uh, and, and that was that. And when you left the studio, were you on a total buzz? Were you completely? The thing that drew me to the, to the sculpture was more the things that happened that I could see that which happened to the metal during the casting process. Where I work on it on a sort of on a micro scale, here was a life-size or larger than life-size cat, and I could see, oh, but the, the metal, there was turbulence in the metal there, there's crystallization in the metal over there, you know, maybe this mold was a bit cold, or maybe it was a bit hot, or I could see what the metal had done, and it was actually the, probably more the technical aspects that, that drew me in. Because you felt actually I'm competent at what's happening here and I understand it. Yeah. And this is really satisfying because it's no longer doing the same tooth again and again. It's mm. something that's got variation in it. Yeah. And also it's something that I can engage myself in. It's like more of you can be expressed in it in a way. I just knew this was the future. I, I, I'll never forget that moment. To sort of walking in and you're seeing these people do this and it's like, I want that. That that this is this this is where I belong. It's quite um, interesting this because so many people had been telling you before to come here but you hadn't. No. Until somebody literally put you in the car and drove you there. I find it interesting that Nick's career is so colored by his experiences as a young boy. His father's sculpture studio and travels into the wild and his mother's candle casting works. Having heard so many stories of a similar kind, where individuals' careers are so connected to their childhoods, I'm left with a question of whether we actually choose our own childhood circumstances to give the foundation for our lives. So in terms of casting a flower, yes, I'm just thinking that, I mean, you touch a petal, it literally falls apart. How do you actually do that, technically? I'm going to disagree with you. <laughs> they don't fall oh, apart. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to maybe explain it by, you know, sort of opening a tap lightly and actually pouring it on slowly over a flower. And the flower should actually still keep its shape. Okay. Um, so they, they, they're tough. Flowers that do collapse under the weight of, of, of flowing, slow flowing water probably won't suit my process. Okay. You know, so, so ideally, imagine an orchid is a nice thick petaled waxy flower. You know, that's, that's ideal for casting. It's a very simple process. When you make a mold of a, of a flower, I'm attaching my, let's call it a fragile flower, on a base in the bath and I'm filling it from the top and as soon as the, 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 the flower you know, gets compacted with the mold making material from the outside, I'll just pour it a little bit in on, the, on the inside of the flower and that sort of balances out the, the tensions. 
it's almost preferable that they sway around in the mold making material within swaying around you know lightly vibrating the mold um, the plant will retain its shape within the mold within the material and now you've filled up this mold what happens next this mold will dry let's say over a day period just in air and then and then it goes through a process in the kiln which uh, which is a slow baking process in a, in a way it becomes it becomes porcelain so it beca- you can really it becomes strong hard but it's still porous enough for me to do the the vacuum casting process and in this process the plant is burnt up is it it's carbon based mm-hmm. it burns away to dust mm-hmm. uh, working with some hardwoods i've had to can i send my baking times up to 90 hours to to get rid of all the carbon and now you've got this ceramic cast, as it were. And then what do you do? I've, I have a kiln. Let's let's say I have a kiln with six of these molds in place. The, those molds will then be placed upon a vacuum table. Once I've molten the metal, I will draw a vacuum through the mold. So, so you'd I'm, have a hold at the bottom somewhere, or no, the top. no. This 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 material is porous. Okay, so I'm actually I'm drawing with you. through the material. I'm with you. Okay. I'm drawing through the material. So, so as soon as my gauge tells me I've got enough vacuum, which is you know ideally at about ninety-five percent, I then drop my molten metal into the into the mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it sucks it through basically. Gets sucked into the into the mold. I, I've kept that part as simple as possible. I think that's sort of the success of the work. You know, I'm, I'm not interfering with the flow of of how the plant actually grew and created that flower. I always say to people, you know, if I'm going to, let's say I have to cast a human being, I will cast that human being through its belly button. And that should probably give you all the toenails and the hair and the ears and eyes and, and fingers and everything. It's sort of hitting it in the, from the growth spot. And once you've cast and it's cooled down, you break off your ceramic. So, so these molds are red hot. They, they're red hot when the metal goes in. Must be quite beautiful. Uh, I, I, I love it. So Nick, would you say that that process itself of seeing whether the metal's too hot or this or that, it's quite an intuitive process at this stage in your... Yes, it it, a, no, it, it definitely is for me. I, I work with so many variables. You know, I think a open flame crucible and and the sound of the flame, I prefer to match the sound of a flame to what's going on in the mold. And this technique, it started in Egypt. I read somewhere on a website, this lost wax mm-hmm. technique. Is that correct? It's a 6,000-year-old practice, hmm. lost wax casting. I mean, when I read on your website, what you see yourself doing is, to an extent is documenting different plants in a, in a particular way. Yes. Could yes, you say that. something a little bit about that and what that process is? That's the dream. Because of my process, I literally am catching the shape of a plant. You know, I'm almost creating a three-dimensional photograph of the plant. I mean, hiking up a path where people would mountain bike, and in the middle of that path there was a... It was an orchid, uh, a, a Desperus capensis. Because I had mountain biked on that path myself, I, I knew this, this orchid was tickets. I actually went out late one Sunday 
at dusk and I poached it from Table Mountain National Park. And it was a big thing for me because I, I, I'm, I'm obviously I'm against poaching, but I also knew this this plant was 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 history. And uh, I immediately went back to the studio and I made molds of the different parts of this little orchid, cast it maybe two days later, immediately pieced it together, and and I had an exact replica of this poached plant, which I still have. You know, and through that, the orchid fraternity got hold of me and commissioned me to make 36 trophies of 36 different species of orchids. And that afforded me my first kiln, my own kiln. That I, you know, and it was a specific kiln um, which I had made up to fit into the back of my truck. And that was 10 years ago. So you drive out into the countryside and you do your work out there? Yes. You work out there and you come back with these items? That is the dream, yes. Okay. Um, now, th now this dream is just, it's just coming into play. So are people actually asking you to come and document a series of different plants? Is that the direction that you're keen on going in? That is what I realized the minute I collected that first orchid, was that this is a way to document landscapes in plant form. It's also a way to, to document red data plants. Uh, it's, it's a way to, to capture the shapes of plants that probably will be extinct, yeah, creating an awareness or to, to bring plants from the wild into a gallery or museum sort of arena. You know, plants are disappearing, disappearing rapidly. Absolutely. And I think just to have a, a three-dimensional record of it, um, I, I think has true merit. Of course, it has no scientific merit. You know, we're just capturing shapes. Yes. Uh, you can't can't extract the DNA from my from my castings, etc. Um, you know, and I'm aware of that. I mean, I would say what you're doing is the complete opposite of an expressionist artist. Absolutely. <laughs> you're replicating to the absolute millimeter of like 0.3 of a millimeter or even smaller of a plant, whereas they would be expressing what's living inside them. Yes. And you actually state on your website somewhere that my sense of design must not interfere with what I've taken from nature. And I think that would be quite a, a close dictum to what you are busy with, effectively. And what, Nick, gets you excited in what you're doing now? Like, when you're doing your work, what, what is really like, yes, I'm, I'm with it now, I'm happy? Well, the, the challenge to depict a landscape in plant form is really what excites me. You know that wherever you walk, some plant is going to creep up from some little crack somewhere and it's just going to be mind-blowing. If you walk on a sand dune, on a, like on a west coast sand dune, there's apparently nothing, but when you start digging a bit and you start seeing these long strings of plants and, and you start seeing, uh, you know, it becomes clear how they capture capture water and how they how deep their roots go and how they're almost not there but that's all there is there's always going to be something to capture this past body of work that i worked on we worked in the in the kalahari desert jane and i and i and rupert my son we did a a four-month residency 
in the Kalahari Desert. And we, we arrived there at the start of the rainy season, um, which, which yields amazing bulbous flowers. And, you know, it was just going to be extraordinary. And there was no rain this year. Zilch, no, no, none rain. I had the, the leftovers from, from the previous winter, which was the leftovers from the previous good summer. So I, I really had brown and red-brown sand landscape to work with. After a, a quick spell of rain, you know, after maybe three millimeters of rain, some plants would just suddenly come into life. Poof. But they'd only be in that form, in that state for a day. You know, and, that, and that's where you actually have to be completely on it and harvest and work through the night to just capture that, those, that three millimeter of rain in plant form poof, there and, and, and hope it, you know, it was actually enough to sustain the, the cellular structure of the, the flowers. You know, I, I need plump flowers and, and a dehydrated flower is not going to work for me. The, the, those challenges of a landscape that really drive me. I, do you, sell, do you see yourself carrying on with this kind of work for quite some time? Oh, yes. I feel like, I really feel I have my work cut out for me. I sincerely believe that doing this was a gift that was given to me and that, that you know, I, I have a responsibility to answer to that gift. You know, it might, it might be the story which I tell myself, you know, that, that, keeps, me, that keeps me focused and, um, and also disciplined. And, and, and also driven, you know, there are many life, lifetimes worth of work in this. There are actually other continents to capture. You know, and, and with that comes sort of, you know, is it just me who, who needs to do this? Or, you know, do I actually, actually have to train people to do this? And have 40 or 50 people working with you doing this? Working on this and, mm -hmm. and creating libraries of, of plants disappearing. Mm -hmm. Nick? Thank you for your time, your insights. It was fascinating. Thanks sure. very much. Thank you, Keith. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for asking amazing questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
You can share this discussion or listen again at naturalscool.com. That's natural, S-C-O-O-L.com. Also, feel free to sign up for our bi-monthly email newsletter. Every two weeks, we send out inspired thoughts and reflections about design and architecture, as well as interviews with innovative designers from all around the world. You can sign up for our newsletter on our website, naturalschool.com. We are architects and facilitators who inspire innovative design professionals to find deeper meaning in their personal lives through their creative practice. This is a Natural School production. Thanks to our host, Keith, our producer, Shannon Flynn, and Daniel Apple for original music. Our major funding partner is Natural Architecture, specialists in sculptural and sustainable architecture. Go to naturalarchitecture.co.za to find out more. Thank you.